I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Our focus this morning is on verses 22 and 23. Paul says in Romans 9 and verse 22, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we come to you today and we desire to understand your holy word. We acknowledge, Father, today that these words that your servant Paul has written has revealed to us from you. These words involve some complex ideas, complex things regarding your nature, your attributes, and the way that you accomplish your purposes in the world. There are things that are difficult for our finite minds to understand. Lord, I pray that you would give us the humility to come before your word with submissiveness, with an open mind, with open heart, that you would soften our hearts to receive this truth. Help us to understand it to the best of our finite abilities. And Lord, may your spirit impress upon us uh, the weightiness, the seriousness of these truths and what it means then for, for our worship of you as your children. Lord, may we come away from this passage with a a greater understanding of your glory and of the incredibly generous mercy that you have lavished upon us. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul has been wrestling with a very important question, and that is, why is it that so many Israelites are not believing the gospel? Why are so many of my fellow countrymen not Christians, not embracing Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah, their Savior and Lord? And so Paul is wrestling with that on a personal level, but also on a much deeper theological level, having to do with the character of God. Because if God has made promises to these people, to the Israelite people, if he has made covenants with them, then if a great number of them are lost because of their unbelief, what does that say about the faithfulness of God? What does that say about the truth of his word and and how it stands firm? So Paul is wrestling with that question, and he answers it clearly in verse 6 that God's word has not failed. The problem is not with God's word. The problem is not with God's purpose. The problem is not with God's plan. The problem is not with God's character, his faithfulness. In fact, Paul says, the reason why things are the way that they are, the way things are happening in which many, many Israelite people are not believing, but yet many, many Gentiles are believing, that is in full accord with the purposes of God, is what he is is revealing to us in Romans 9. And so Paul is saying that 
that because there are a great number of Israelites, Jews, who are not coming to Christ, that does not nullify the word of God, the faithfulness of God, because it was never God's intention to save eternally each and every descendant of Abraham. It was always his intention to have a spiritual remnant of grace within the larger ethnic people of Abraham's descendants. That's why he says in verse number six, that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So not just because you can claim your ancestry to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, does that automatically make you an eternal child of God? There's, there's, something more, there's something more deep, more mysterious at work here in the providence of God. So it's not, you can't claim your access to God based on your Abrahamic fatherhood, ancestry. You can't claim it based on who your parents were, what nation you came from. You can't claim it based on circumcision, on having the law, on any of these external things. And he also reveals through the example of Isaac and and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, that you also can't claim access to God by your works, by how good you are, nor by anything in you at all. So what is it then? What is the criteria? What What is the governing principle at work in which we have this Israel within, is, within an Israel. How, how does that work? And what is, the, what is the governing principle, the operating principle, by which some people are in the inner Israel, but some people are not? And Paul's answer is very, very clear. And that is the electing purpose of God. In other words, God elects. God selects. God chooses. On what basis? Something in us? No, he rules that out completely. Nothing in us, nothing that we've done, no no works that we've done, no, no, nothing that God foresees that we do, whether it be works or faith. There's nothing in us that makes us worthy to be included in the spiritual Israel. Nothing. So on what basis then does it depend? It depends solely on God and his grace. Completely, 100%. With God. And so Paul says it's election. It's the electing purpose. Verse 11, in order that God's purpose in election might stand firm, he chose Jacob over Esau. Well, that raises questions then. Well, if it has nothing to do with us, it has nothing to do with our works or our merits or what we can do, have done, or what we could do in the future. If it's nothing with us at all, then doesn't that make it unfair? Doesn't that make it kind of arbitrary that, that God would choose some to be included in the inner Israel and some not? Isn't that unjust? And that would be the perfect opportunity for Paul to say, no, you've misunderstood me. That's not what I'm saying. No, it really is up to us. It really is our choice. That's not what he does. He doesn't try to correct our misunderstanding there at all. When we raise this objection, instead, he doubles down on the sovereignty of God. And he says, no, here's what God says to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So when given an opportunity to draw back from the implications of divine sovereignty, Paul lunges forward and says, let me me illustrate this from Scripture. 
and from what God himself has spoken. In other words, part of what, what he's doing in that Exodus 33 quotation with Moses is he's showing that a part of the fundamental nature of God is to have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. That is God's divine right as God, as Yahweh. That's what he's saying there. So it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so not only does God have the the right as the divine sovereign to have mercy on whom he wants, but he also has the right to harden whom he wants. And he gives illustration from the case of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. That God hardened Pharaoh in order to display his power and to, to glorify his own name in all the earth. He used Pharaoh and he used Pharaoh's stubbornness and his hard heart that God had determined to use him to display his great name. To make his name spread throughout the whole ancient world at that time. And so Paul's conclusion in verse 18 is that God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, here's an opportunity for Paul to correct our misunderstanding about the sovereignty of God. Because he raises another objection. So, so somebody will say, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? In other words, if God's sovereignty is that strong, if God's sovereignty is that one-sided, that God-sided, then we're not really responsible anymore, are we? Why are we still to blame? If, if God is that sovereign, again, another opportunity for Paul to draw back and say, no, I, I think you've misunderstood me. You've, you've pushed my argument beyond what I was intending. Paul doesn't do that. Again, he dives deeper. And he says, in essence, you human creation have no right to talk back to God. That's his basic response is, he, he, he appeals to the creator-creature distinction, and he reminds us of who we are. We're the created things. God is the creator. And, and as a recognized universal principle that we even as human beings recognize, Paul uses the example of a potter with his clay. Doesn't the, doesn't the artist, doesn't the creator, doesn't the maker doesn't the engineer, don't they have the right to make what they want to make? That's just a fundamental truth, a givenness of nature, of design. And it begins with God. That the maker has the rights to do with what he wants to, with what he makes. It belongs to him. And that's ultimately true to an even higher degree with God because he's on a whole other level. So we have no right to talk back in a, in a skeptical, judgmental, resisting, obstinate way to God and questioning who he is or what he does with his universe. We can't talk back to God. And he concludes in verse 21, doesn't the potter have the right to make some, to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? In other words, there are two different purposes going on here with the same lump of clay. And isn't it within the potter's right to do that? Now, verses 22 and 23 explain how it is that this applies to, to us as people, especially applies to the situation of unbelieving Israel. He shows us really the, the reason behind 
why God does what he does. One commentator said that Romans 9, 22, and 23 is perhaps in all of Scripture the one place where we get the, the clearest glimpse of God pulling back the curtain and showing us the mysteries of the divine will. He is showing us, in essence, why it is that he does what he does in his world. And here's the key question for us. Is God glorified in the judgment of sinners? That's a key question for us to wrestle with. Now, if you were to ask the average person in the world that question, what response would you get? Most of the people in our world, their conception of God cannot even begin to imagine a God who judges sin and condemns people eternally to damnation. Most of our world cannot even conceive of that as a possibility. And to even ask that question, that not only is that possible that God would do that, but that God is glorified in doing that, that would blow their minds. I guess my question for us is, does that blow our minds? So are we more thinking along the ways of the world in which we live and have been swimming? Or are we more thinking along the lines of a biblical worldview? That God has the right to judge sinners. And in that judgment of sinners is glorified and receives praise. Because that's what's going on in this passage. In essence, we could even step back and and ask a very large question, a very large philosophical worldview type question, and that is, why is there sin or evil in the world at all? Why Why is there sin or evil in the world at all? Now, on the one hand, we want to be very careful about saying, as James reminds us in his epistle, that God is not the author of sin. God does not tempt people to sin. So, in that sense, God is not the direct cause of sin. He doesn't tempt people to sin. But, if we're going to uphold a biblical teaching of sovereignty, of providence, of infinite knowledge, foreknowledge, then we have to maintain that when God created the world, before he ever said, let there be light, that God not only knew, but that it was part of his eternal intention that there would be a world with sin and evil in it. And if that were not the case, then why do we have a verse that we find in Revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world? If Jesus is the chosen sacrificial Lamb, 
before the foundation of the world, that means that it was in God's plan to send a substitutionary sacrifice for what? For sinners, right? So before the foundation of the world was envisioned a world with sin in it and sinners in it, sinners that would need to be redeemed by a substitutionary Savior. So somehow we have to wrestle with the fact that as a part of God's sovereignty, He allowed, He permitted sin in His world. So that when Adam and Eve took of that fruit and ate in the Garden of Eden, God was not caught off guard at all. It's not as if God turned around and said, oh no, what is, what's happening? This, my whole plan is unraveling. It doesn't happen with God. So he knew the end from the beginning, right? That's what Isaiah says. He knows the end from the beginning. So... Sin, in, in, a, in this sense, is a part of the eternal, all-inclusive decree of God. Ephesians 1 says that he works out everything, all-inclusively, for the purpose of his will, or according to the purpose of his will. Well, verse 22 shows us why it is that, at least in one sense, at least one little view as to why sin and sinners are in the world. He says in verse 22, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Now, I'm going to walk through each word of that because it's incredibly important. First of all, the word although in the NIV, is not in the original text. It is an attempt by translators to try to, to, do, to, to, to do with the passage what they feel is the case with when it says choosing. And literally the word there is willing. Willing or determining. So in what sense is God willing or determining? Is it in a concessive sense, like although this, it's really this? And I would say that's not the best way to understand the passage. It's not in a concessive way. Although this, it's really this. I would say a better way of understanding the passage in context is because of this, this. There is no although in the Greek text. Literally, it starts out, and if willing... God, to make known his power and his wrath, or to show his wrath and to make known his power, bore with great patience or endurance the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And so what's interesting about verses 22 and 23 is that Paul begins an if statement that he doesn't explicitly finish. If God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, and then you have several then purpose statements, to show his wrath, to make his power known, and then in verse 23, and in order to demonstrate the riches of his glory 
to the objects of his mercy. So it's if God willing to do these things, to, to purpose these things, and then Paul never answers the if. Never really finishes in a grammatical sense the if statement. Now you might think that's weird, but it actually happens quite a bit in the Greek language. And the writer will do that sometimes so as to force the reader to finish the statement. And so in our own minds, we need to f- complete the thought. And in the context, the thought would be something like this. If God is willing to do this, and for this purpose, to accomplish this, the idea is, then what do you have to say about that? How would you reply to that? How would you talk back to God about that? What would your response be? Can you argue with God about that? That's the idea. In the context, because of verse number 19, 20, and 21, can you, a human being, talk back to God? No. Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So if God then was willing to do this for this purpose and to accomplish this, then you have nothing to argue back, do you? You have nothing to say in response if God is God and we are his creations. That's the idea. And so if God, choosing, willing to show his wrath and make known his power, and here is actually the main statement of the the sentence. The main statement of the sentence is God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. That's the main, that's the heart of the statement. God bore, that is to endure, to bear up under. He bore with great patience, long-suffering, the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. Why would God do that? Why would God endure? Why would God be patient? Why would God have long-suffering toward objects of wrath? Well, let's go back to the Pharaoh example in the context. Why was God patient with Pharaoh? Why did God long-suffer with Pharaoh? Why did God take ten plagues to release his people when he could have done it in one? Why was God long-suffering with Pharaoh? Well, he already gave us the answer by quoting Scripture. Verse 17, Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So let's go back to Pharaoh. Why was God long-suffering with Pharaoh? God was long-suffering with Pharaoh. He was patient with Pharaoh. He, he endured ten plagues and, and these constant back and forth with Pharaoh. Why? Not because it was ever God's intention for Pharaoh to repent or to be shown mercy. What was God's intention with Pharaoh? To judge him. God's intention with Pharaoh was to judge him and not to judge him after the first plague, 
or the second or the third, but to judge him through all ten plagues, and then ultimately to judge him in the Red Sea, right? In other words, he long suffered with Pharaoh and judged him and had patience with him along the way so that he could draw it out and then judge him in the end. Why? Because it was God's purpose to show his power and to make his glory known in all of the earth. Well, let's bring that to verse 22. Why would God bear with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction, if not to show his mighty power, which he says in verse number two, and to glorify his own name? To show his wrath and to make his power known. How would God show his wrath if his wrath was never meted out? He wouldn't, would he? God's wrath has to be dispensed for it to be shown. God's power has to be put on display for it to be known. In other words, what Paul is saying in verse 22 is God is glorified in the condemnation of sinners. He is glorified in the condemnation of sinners. Why? Because what does it show? It shows the attributes of his character, doesn't it? It shows that God is righteous. It shows that God is just. It shows that God is holy and that there is none like him in all the earth. And his wrath is an expression, his judgment is an expression of those attributes of God, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness. In other words, if God never judged sinners, we would never know what justice and righteousness and holiness are. God puts on display his attributes. And the thing we have to wrestle with in verse number 22 is that God in his sovereignty chooses who are the vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. Verse 23 then. So what if God is doing this? Why would he do that? Well, God desires to show his attributes, the full range of his character. He shows the full range of his character, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness in the judgment of sinners. And so if we're going to be faithful to who God is, and if we're going to be on the side of God, we have to say that it is right for God to judge sinners. And it is within the sovereign prerogative of God to leave sinners in their just condemnation and choose not to show them mercy. That is within God's right. But then, verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. So here's another purpose statement. 
in order to show, to make known the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy. There's a relationship. There's a parallel relationship here between verses 22 and 23. God endures with great patience, with with long-suffering vessels of wrath. Why? So that he can demonstrate his power and his wrath and make known his attributes and therefore glorify himself in the judgment of sinners. But then, verse 23 then takes it to a next level. Then God, in glorifying himself, in glorifying his name, gives even greater evidence of his glory and of the full range of his attributes when he shows mercy to sinners who don't deserve it. In order to lavish, to make known the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy. So to put that in terms of verses 19 through 21, the vessels of wrath are the pots made for common use. The vessels of mercy are the pots made for special use. And Paul is saying it's within the prerogative of God to do that. And to put it in terms of the larger context, it's within God's right to cause some to be the Israel within the Israel, the vessels for special use, the vessels of mercy. And it's within God's right to leave some in the outer Israel the vessels for common use, or the vessels of wrath. He did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. And the idea here is that God not only shows his glory in judgment, but he also shows his glory in mercy, but not in a parallel way, in a higher way. In a higher way. So it's almost as if the judgment of sinners, that is, that is the default. That's the default display of God's justice and his righteousness and his holiness. But then in an even greater display of his mercy, he, he sets against that display of mercy the backdrop of his wrath against sinners. In other words, his wrath against sinners is what we all deserve, right? Right? We all deserve that. And I think if we could grasp that truth, we would understand Romans 9 in a much greater way that every single one of us deserve hell. Every single one of us deserves condemnation eternally forever because we have rebelled against our creator. If we understand that, then we understand much of Romans 9 because then Paul is saying is against that backdrop, against what we all deserve, God has special mercy on some. And those who receive that special mercy, they are blown away by the superabounding mercy and grace of God. Everywhere in Scripture that you see the idea of election or predestination, God's sovereignty talked about, it is always in reference for the good of His people. Always. And so even though this passage says that God, God's will, in order to display the full range of his attributes, God's will is to judge sinners, vessels of wrath. But against that backdrop, it is 
specially for the vessels of mercy that God wishes to display his grace. And so to me, the, the main two points of this passage are actually relatively simple, even though they're profound in understanding, trying to understand them. The two points are this. God is glorified in the judgment of sinners. God is glorified even more so in mercy shown to sinners. And so God is glorified in both. If it were not for sin and the judgment of sinners, how would we know what mercy is? How would we know what grace is? If not God giving us something beyond what we deserved. It's the only way for us to understand grace. It's the only way for us to understand mercy is to see what we deserve and then to realize what we've been given that we didn't deserve. And so my prayer is simply this. My prayer is that we would, as Paul encourages us, instructs us, moves us to do, is that we would bow before the Lord of the universe and let God be God. Let God be God. And really, there's, we don't have much choice in the matter anyway, do we? God is God. He's going to be God. It's just a matter of whether or not we recognize that and bow before that in submission and humility. As one commentator said, and I'll close with this, God is going to be glorified by every single person in the universe. God is going to be glorified by every single person in the universe. He will either be glorified through them in their judgment, which they deserve, or he will be glorified through them in the mercy that he has lavished on them. But either way, God will be glorified by every single one of the creations that he has made. And that's his right as the potter. The, the Westminster Confession the, the catechism, actually, the very first question kind of frames the whole catechism, our whole view of life, is what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on these verses, then asked the helpful question, what is the chief end of God? If the chief end of man... Our chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the chief end, the chief purpose of God being God? Is it not the same purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy himself forever? Now to us, that might seem incredibly arrogant, narcissistic, prideful, for someone to say, my whole purpose is to glorify me and enjoy myself forever. For us, that would be prideful, narcissistic, incredibly selfish. But for God, what other creation, what other thing, what other entity, what other being in the universe could God honor and glorify other than himself? If God were to honor and glorify anyone or anything other than himself, God himself would be guilty of idolatry. There is no higher being. There is no greater perfection. There is no higher God. There is no other 
force or entity or anything else in the universe to which God can direct his attention. Therefore, all of God's focus and attention is on his own glory and his own enjoyment forever and ever within the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has created us as his creatures to further glorify him. And so may we do that. But my prayer is that we would do that as vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy that God prepared beforehand to lavish his grace and mercy on that we might enjoy him in his presence forevermore. So as his vessels of mercy, let us praise him, let us glorify him, let us give honor to God, let us sing songs of joy and worship, and let us share with this world the message that God is king, but he has sent a redeemer. And may they find salvation in that redeemer. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we acknowledge, Lord, our, our limitations, that we are finite, we are small. We are just the dust, the clay. You are the maker. We acknowledge, Lord, that it is your right to do with your creation as you will. Lord, we are humbled. We are so blown away by the fact that you, the sovereign Lord of the universe, would take notice of us. That you would love us even before the foundation of the world. That you would love us. And that you would determine to send your son your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for us that we might live and that you might pursue us with an everlasting love and draw us in by your Holy Spirit and give us new birth into the family of God and that now we should be called your children. Now we have an inheritance laid up for us that will never fade away, never perish. We have to look forward to an eternal home and a new heavens and a new earth in your presence where there is joy and praise and gladness forevermore. God, we don't deserve any of that. And for us to think about the fact that you did that for us out of your own love, out of your own mercy, Lord, it is, it is beyond our comprehension. So Lord, I ask that you would just cause praise to arise in our hearts in response to that thought. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the Savior that you have sent for us. Lord, may we, may we revel in your grace today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.